time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Welcome today to Market Meditations. Our guest, Akhtar Badshah, is a pretty impressive, he's had a pretty impressive career being in charge of Microsoft's philanthropy group, um, starting a, a, a pretty impressive course at the University of Washington calling, called Accelerating Social Transformation. And most recently, he wrote a book called Purpose Mindset, How Microsoft Inspires Its Employees and Alumni to Change the World. I guess the reason it really mattered to me as well, and I think it'll matter to a lot of people, is my wife, in case you haven't listened to the podcast before, works for Microsoft. And we're always very excited about the matching that Microsoft does to all of our donations every year for any institute institution that will actually register with the company. But uh, Akhtar's noticed that um, over time, it's changed the mindset of a lot of different people and uh, he's and actually led to enormous transformation. And he's going to share about the book he wrote about that. And hopefully it'll get you thinking about how you can make a major impact on the world. Welcome to the show, Akhtar. Neil, thank you very much. And Chris, for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I am looking forward to the conversation. We, we are as well. Yeah, very much. Akhtar, you know, I, I told a little bit about your background, but I always get the sense I'm never, I'm, I don't even think I've scratched the surface. Do you mind taking us through a little bit of your kind of brief history? Uh, not brief history, I guess brief in, you know, the fact it's not 2000 years old, but brief history of your career to before we move into the book. Just the yeah, so I have kind of an eclectic background I'm formally trained as an architect designing buildings. And I taught architecture at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for the first 10 years of my career. From there, transition to working in the nonprofit sector, mostly focused on cities and large cities, mega cities. My wife, Alka, joined Microsoft when we were in the East Coast in 1993. And then when we moved here in 1998, I got to experience this company called Microsoft and its employees. And I was at that point starting a nonprofit organization called Digital Partners, which was focused on bridging the digital divide in early 2000. And Vijay Vashi, who you also know, was a senior executive at Microsoft. And we met at Bellevue Club. And he kind of became part of my journey getting on the board of my organization, and then eventually getting me to take the offer at Microsoft to run Microsoft's corporate philanthropy, which I did for a decade. And now I have my own consultancy practice, which is focused on purpose and helping companies and individuals discover their purpose and also teach at the University of Washington. Back up a second. 
you know, yeah. I, my, <laughs> <laughs> let's rewind a little bit. <laughs> 1992, 93, Microsoft, how many employees? Were, I think there's 140,000 employees today and then God knows how many contractors. Um, how many employees were there at Microsoft when in 92? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think my wife was badge number 38,000 at that time. So, hmm. <clears throat> so I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, um, Akhtar, you sort of uh, quickly stated that you bridged uh, a career from teaching architecture at MIT right. and going into the nonprofit world. How did you take right. that swan dive? What drew you um, into the nonprofit world? Was this something that had always stirred inside you or what triggered you know, that? It's not change? that difficult, you know, when you really look at it and say, you know, my focus was on urban redevelopment, urban revitalization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even when I was teaching, I was, you know, partnering with folks from the World Bank and USAID and UNDP that were all focused on urban revitalization and urban redevelopment. And when my wife got the opportunity to join Microsoft in New York, at that same time, I got the opportunity to work with a couple of colleagues and friends from the UN and other places to start this organization called the Mega Cities Project, mm-hmm. which was focused on cities, large cities, but it was established as a nonprofit organization. So from an issue perspective, it was still very much the same. It's the entity that I was using now to pursue certain ideas that I had went from an educational institution into a nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger shift was going from there to Seattle, where I started a nonprofit organization, which was focused on bridging the digital divide, which was a complete shift from a knowledge-based perspective, where I had no idea what I was doing in terms of technology. Mm. And I came into it accidentally and then just learned about these issues because I got engaged and I got involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, very fascinating that you wound up in nonprofits and then really uh, that blossomed into this um, deep commitment to philanthropy and uh, really trying to uncover that sort of value that's in, I think, everyone. Um, You know, the U.S., of course, leads in philanthropy. I think, what, one and a half percent or so of our GDP Americans donate. Um, India is not a slouch. I mean, they're like the seventh largest uh, charitable, charitably minded uh, country by donations. Oh, and it's I I assume it's actually higher because lots of stuff doesn't get reported there. Right, 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 right. right. Well, the last statistics I showed were like 2017. It showed like 0.37% of GDP, about uh, a quarter of what uh, is registered for the U.S. But you're probably right, Neil. Um, 
have you seen a, a, I mean, I guess part of that was what existed in the minds of the Microsoft um, managers and the leaders who were trying to uh, create this philanthropy-driven idea. But, you know, in your book, you talk about some of those discussions. What was that like? I mean, I think, you know, in my old corporate lives, it was just give a little to the United Way or the choice that the um, the leaders in the C-suite chose, the charities. It didn't really have that sort of decentralized feeling that Microsoft was able to develop. Yeah, so this is, I mean, you know, I mean, clearly, Americans are extremely generous, more generous than other parts of the world, simply because in other parts of the world, because of their tax structure and the services that governments provide, it's a little different. Whereas here, you know, our founding fathers, you know, we were much more self-reliant and encouraged to be self-reliant. So clearly you have that mindset here. India, it's more around non-formalized philanthropy where you are supporting the extended family in some form or the other. And that is changing, but it's still the primary driver. Now, when you look at Microsoft, and part of the reason I got excited and interested in writing this book is here you have this young company that starts encouraging his employees to give back in 1983. And then what it actually does to their minds and their approach to life. So if you rewind back to the, you know, 1980s, Bill Gates clearly comes out of a family that has been very involved in the community, United Way, Planned Parenthood, both mother and father, active philanthropist, active in the community, and that clearly rubs off in some form or the other, but not really in any dramatic way on Bill. But in 1983, a mother encourages him to launch a employee program where you could just have employees' donations deducted through payroll. So people could actually say, hey, I want $100 to go to United Way paid in 12 installments or 10 bucks every day or 20 bucks every month or something like that. And that raised $17,000. Fast forward to 1985, Bill Newcomb joins the company as the general counsel. He too comes from a family where his parents were actively engaged, a lawyer who had worked with Bill Gates, had done a lot of community service through their law practice, comes in, looks at this company with enormous talent, enormous energy, young 20-something engineers working long hours 
to change the world through technology and recognizes that these people need to have something where they will eventually establish roots in this community, will have families, will get married, will have kids, and there has to be a way by which they get engaged in the community. And he basically asked Bill and John Shirley, the president of the company at that time, to create a division under him called Community Affairs. And that's where the formal employee matching gifts program starts. And it is very much a way to kind of get this engine set up so that as roots get established by these employees, they will start using it. You know, Bill Gates, in my conversations with him, said, you know, early on, it was just people giving to their alma mater. But over a period of time, as people started discovering their own needs, their own you know, desires, their own interest, you started getting this extension outwards. And you fast forward to 2019, and you know, $200 million, including the match, gets donated to you know, 28,000 nonprofit organizations in this community and around the world, impacting the lives of millions of people. And just about any cause is allowed, as long as it's a registered 501c3. So you see the shift happening. And in the book, I start profiling both people that were very early employees of Microsoft and later employees of Microsoft and try and get a sense of how each of these, these groups of individuals got impacted by the employee giving campaign and what that has led to them as they've gone on to pursue other things in life. Antar, will you give us a couple of uh, notable examples to you um, that really just touched you when you got a chance to go through the entire story? Yeah, so, so from the book, the, from the book, I know you must have countless examples beyond the book, but from the no, book. I'm, I'm from the book, right? So I mean, take take uh, Jeff and Trisha Rakes, right? Jeff and sorry, right, well known couple. First couple, you know, got married in the company. Jeff is a farm boy from Nebraska, goes to Stanford, comes here. Trisha is a local girl employee very early on, employee number 70-something at Microsoft. And, you know, they both came from backgrounds where they were engaged in the community, at least their parents were. And very early on, they, as early employees, they got taken in, especially the women, by Mary Gates. And, you know, she kind of helped nurture and mentor some of these women. And this notion of community service started rubbing off. And they both knew that if and when they got money, they would give back. And of course, for many of them, that became a reality because the company went public and, and the growth in the 90s. And they had, you know, they, it, there was significant wealth, which led them to eventually start the Rakes Foundation, 
which is focused on youth empowerment, diversity and inclusion. And so that's a very interesting story that here are these hyper competitive individuals. Rakes was running a major division for Microsoft and then had the opportunity to run the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and now his own foundation. And you see that transformation from a growth mindset and slowly learning about purpose. And the employee giving campaign was just this nurturing ground, right? Every year, people did all sorts of activities and got engaged in these community-based things, and it's slowly they started learning. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, Somasagar and Akila, they both come here and Soma said that, you know, for most of my, for a large part of my career, my focus was just on my growing in the company. And I saw this employee giving campaign at a distance. But eventually, as we became much more settled and much more strong in the company, then suddenly something opens up and they became active philanthropists and giving back. Mm -hmm. But then you've got stories of people like Kajin Saheed who came in, you know, and was there in the company for 10 years where the company was just flat. But here is this kid from Bangladesh, comes in as a vendor, you know, was part of the scouts there, had inclinations of giving back, comes here, gets engaged in some voluntary activities, starts a nonprofit organization called Spria, which is looking at providing healthcare services in the slums of Dhaka, kind of does both things, right? I mean, raises a little bit money from friends and, and colleagues at Microsoft, spends his winter vacation in Bangladesh, helping out as much as he can, and then eventually realizes that, look, if he really needs to make a difference, he will have to quit the company and do this as a full-time effort and takes all of that learning from Microsoft of having run businesses and takes that to Bangladesh into the slum community, applies that mindset with a drive towards purpose and makes enormous change in that slum community where Incidence of prenatal death was so high has now last year dropped down to zero. Wow. That's impressive. So, yeah. So, so again, you know, data-driven, but purpose-driven. And so it's these stories that kind of make that change in terms of how the company provided employees because of this employee engagement program, the opportunity to get engaged outside of the company and in doing so discover purpose for themselves, but get re-energized with the purpose of the company. And that symbiosis, this constant feeding is what, what is so unique. You know, in every job, whatever job you're doing, at some point you get tired. 
you feel you're burnt out. But now you get this new opportunity which re-energizes your batteries. And then you kind of feel even good about the work that you're doing. That's great. Uh, Akhtar, I um, thought a lot about this when, you know, in your book, you talk about how it helped to retain top talent. And as a competitive advantage, Microsoft had that. And um, it wasn't quite as clear to me until you really explained it here. I can see how that would drive people to give more to the company because it was giving more to them and to things that mattered to them. Yeah, and, you know, you kind of look at it, it's also actually quite interesting, right? <clears throat> that it takes about four years. New employees come in, and even with all of these programs, your first, and even the millennials who come in who want opportunities to volunteer and give back, once you get into the corporate environment, you know, your first couple of years, you're just trying to make sure that you survive and then thrive. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing everybody around you getting engaged. And the first two years, you're kind of feeling your way around. Mm -hmm. By the fourth year, you start becoming very engaged. And that's what we are seeing, whether it's young employees or even older employees. It takes about four years to kind of fully get into the spirit of what the employee giving campaign is all about. Now, I'm just making a generalization, right? For some, they jump into it from day one. And for others, it may take much longer. And for each, you know, there are individual drivers that kind of make that decision. But to a large extent, because it is just this constant every year, the same thing happens and everybody get engaged and it's the highest level of people in the company to the and to the junior most people, rank barriers get broken down. Groups from different groups come together to participate, which opens up other opportunities for people. So all of that is what makes this so interesting and fascinating. Akhtar, I was I was surprised when I was dating my wife, who, who you knew before me, <laughs> that uh, when I went to the uh, Bothell Hindu Temple, the number one donor was Microsoft. And I was floored, right, because of, of the matching program, right? The temple did not exist. And then suddenly everybody's donating little bits at a time and Microsoft's matching it. I'm curious if you know anything about uh, how many temples or, you know, institutions like that, that micro churches that, that Microsoft has built. So, so, you, so you want to be careful. So, I mean, I think we never donated to the building of the Hindu temple. Okay. Right. So, so there was a clear distinction between programs run by the Hindu temple for the community is where the donations went and the matching went, right? So the feeding program, the educational program, the outreach program, but not for the construction of the temple, which basically came out of people's money, a lot of them Microsoft, but without the match. But running all of these various programs, which, which 
churches do a phenomenal job. Religious institutions do a phenomenal job of feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, you know, going out and volunteering, building certain things like educational institutions or going into other parts of the world and, you know, say we're going to go and build, you know, dig a well. And all of that got supported through the employee giving campaign and the match. But the tithing piece where you actually gave as part of your religious desire, you would not match that. Got it. Okay. Um, so they, they did help really build communities within these organizations, though, probably in lots of churches, right? If they're helping out with all the so, programs. Uh, so one of the things that I find, which I kind of highlight in my book, is purpose kind of sits in the center. You've got purposes where people from different affiliation, different walks of life, different status can come together around a common purpose to make a difference. In this very fractured, divided world and society that we live in, purpose can become that bridge that brings different people together around the same cause. And if we can get people to focus on the same cause, then many of these differences break down. And companies are where people spend most of their time. Large companies, small companies. So even startups, if they can figure out a way to help build purpose in employees through small activities, it can be enormous. As an example, one of our unicorns here, you know, when COVID hit, employees stepped up and said, look, schools are getting shut down. There are a lot of kids who actually depend on their lunch and breakfast because of the school. They're on the programs there and they're going to go hungry. But, you know, we get a meal every day and we're not going to get this meal and the company is going to save all that money. Can we donate that to a nonprofit organization that is working towards serving meals to kids? It made sense to do that. That same company, which I'm working with and advising, around the Black Lives Matter issue, eventually we, they decided that we're just going to give everybody a week off. And in that week, they can do whatever they want. They can get themselves educated. They can go march. They can volunteer. They can go work for the election. And this now creates these opportunities of people with common purpose to come together. And that, I think, is a very powerful engine 
that then helps even push further the purpose of a company, right? which then doesn't just remain a tagline, but it can get activated because the only way a company's purpose gets activated is by its employees, not by just a few executives saying, you know, this is what we do. Fascinating. I can see why that has such a profound impact on people. It makes to total sense. What a phenomenal culture. And I think that that is possible to build and cultivate within yourself as individuals and within companies. And you can just start small. You just have to have one lever to start. Yeah. I guess anybody can yeah. help somebody else out. Yeah. That's true. Well, I was thinking too, you know, Akhtar, this is fascinating to me because you're, even the timing of this, um, when you founded Digital Partners in 2000, that's around the same time a book came out called Bowling Alone by a Harvard yes. professor Putnam, right? <clears throat> yes, and he was exactly. Yeah, it was almost like you were in the right place to, uh, you know, with Microsoft, of course, to begin to turn this tide of declining civic engagement and community engagement and the loss of what Putnam called social capital in that book. Um, and a couple of things I remember from that, or even he said something like membership in one club cuts your chances of dying next year by 10%. <laughs> and that, you know, in wow, that, the last that, that's month, huge. 10%. Yeah, just that, that kind of engagement. Um, and that, you know, over the last 25 years, I mean, he had written this book in 2000. But that, you know, club memberships in America had declined by 58%. Dinners together with friends was down by a third, 35% or something. We were just commuting to the suburbs and working and civic engagement for many reasons. We became more separate, alone together. Um, and in a very interesting and very real way, Microsoft, you know, really helped to inject um, this life back into different community affairs and re-engage and re-energize their workforce. Wait, Chris, were you familiar and, with this beforehand? But before we got a chance to talk to Akhtar today, that, that Microsoft was making this impact? I didn't realize the scope of it. Um, and I think, you know, it. Uh, I have to admit a little embarrassment because I, I think about the network effects, which makes sense from a company like Microsoft. <laughs> but that's very uh, obvious now. You can see in how this impact that Microsoft's created has multiplied. So it's, it's very remarkable. Um, so, you know, it's uh, Chris, I mean, you know, you, you're absolutely right when you talk about Putnam's book, you know, Bowling Alone, mm -hmm. and this whole notion of membership. But what is interesting is that I kind of talk a little bit about this in the last chapter of my book, that British journalist and author George Monbiot, you know, talks about how we now need to move from a bonding network, which is what membership is all about, to bridging networks. 
right, that bridging networks bring together people from different backgrounds. And during this COVID-19 pandemic has really created this opportunity, opportunity for people to form new bridging networks to help their communities build on altruism and cooperation. That we can't be in this me world. We have to move into this the we world. world. Yeah, the we world. The we yeah. world. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of end the book by highlighting five principles around the purpose mindset. One is, you know, focus on your strengths. Discover your strengths. Because that leads to the creation of greater possibilities. Work from abundance by accessing a variety of innovative resources that are out there, small little resources that can be cobbled together and you can do that if you think about it from abundance. Move from doing things right, which is efficiency, into doing the right thing, which is effectiveness. We should focus on igniting movements as focusing on building a movement, not an organization. Ideas lead to societal change. Ideas eventually need, and you know, moments to turn into movements need some support, which is what happened at Microsoft. A moment with Mary Gates has turned into a movement because so many different people that have come into the role that I played have continued to nurture it and carry it forward. And then this last point around embracing empathy and compassion. You know, I've had the fortune to have spent time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Muhammad Yunus, Kailash Satyarthi. All three of them have one thing in common. They've all won the Nobel Peace Prize. And they've all in some form or the other have told me the exact same thing around compassion. We can do charity by just recognizing somebody in distress and we give them something and then we forget about it. We create empathy where we have deeper connections with individuals, our family, our close friends, others. Compassion is when you're willing to give your life for somebody that you don't know. Now, the majority of us are never going to do that. And that's okay. But for us to remember that we are constantly on that path from empathy to compassion, that's what you are then moving that center from the me to the collective we.
and purpose is that driver. And if we can do that, then each one of us in our own way are making a difference to the world. We're actually more importantly making a difference to yourself and your family. And what that does is that opens up the door for joy and happiness. Akhtar, I want to thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated the uh, insight. That was beautiful, Akhtar. Thank you. Really. Where can people find you and the work you do and your book? And do you mind just stating the title again for everybody? Yeah. The book is Purpose Mindset how Microsoft inspires employees and alumni to change the world. It's available at Amazon, your favorite bookseller. If you are in the US and especially in Seattle, I would un un encourage you to buy it from Island Books. It's www.islandbooks.com. If you order it from there, you will get a signed copy by me. I will personalize it. Or you can buy it from Amazon. You know, you can contact me on social media. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. It's Akhtar, A-K-H, T as in Tom, A-R, B as in Boy, A, D as in David. Connect me. Chat with me, invite me into your companies to come and share this. More importantly, buy a couple of books, one for yourself, but give one to your manager, give one to his manager or her manager. Let them understand how they too can encourage the cultivation of purpose in a company. And if we all do that, we will make this world a much better place and re-knit this fantastic community country that we live in with ideals of freedom, individuality, and collectively we can make the world a better place. We will make sure that you can find Akhtar in the uh, show notes as well. Akhtar, thank you again for joining us today. Akhtar, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing. My deep appreciation and gratitude. Thank you both. Mm -hmm. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Market Meditations with Chris Idell and myself, Neil Modi. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we encourage you to send questions and comments and just thoughts in general about this episode, questions for the people we had on the, the episode, and in general, we hope that uh, you continue to ride along with us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars on the platform that you found us on. Talk to you soon. <laughs>